It's something for nothing. The Rush fan cast, Jerry and Steve with you, Jer. I don't know about you, but I'm still coming down from the high of seeing Getty and Alex perform at the Taylor Hawkins tribute. How about you? Yes, it was pretty magical, pretty wonderful to see them one more time, right? Oh, yeah. And the interesting thing I noticed is just looking on Twitter, a lot of Rush fans, after seeing Getty and Alex, have decided that Rush is getting back together again. Oh, that's not true. No, of course not. No. They're all like, well, Omar Hakim, he could play drums. This will be great. (laughs) No. The thing that I saw in the advertisements for the concert, closer to the show anyway, when they were showing like who was going to appear at what time, they did have Rush down. Yes. Instead of Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson, which maybe that's what gave people the idea that it's going to be Rush on tour. But that's obviously not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And all all the official ads you saw for the shows, it said Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson did not say Rush. No. So what you saw there was not Rush, folks. It wasn't Rush. Right. As much as we wish Rush could come back, they will not. Would I love to see Getty and Alex do a tour? Sure. Of course. But will they? No, I don't think so. I don't think they will. And even if they did, they wouldn't call it Rush. No, no way. No way. It's not Rush without Mr. Peart. That's for sure. That's right. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Rush Fancast. Instagram, find us at The Rushcast. Email Jerry, TheRushcast at gmail.com. Find us on your favorite podcast app. Lex, of course, did the bass intro and outro. And Jerry, I hope you have a great email to get things rolling for us here. You know I do, Steve. This is from Glenn. What's up, Glenn? He says, first, I want to thank you for the amazing podcast. My brother Kevin and I have been listening to your episodes separately then chatting about them weekly for quite a while now, although we still have a ways to go before we catch up to your latest episodes. I thought you might be interested in a story I have about crossing paths with Rush. Of course. I first encountered Rush's music when a school friend in grade eight, who had older brothers that shared their musical interests with him, played Fly By Night for a few of us. I was immediately intrigued and not long after got their latest album at the time, Permanent Waves, which began a lifelong love of their music. Fast forward to March 1991, when I was working in Toronto at my first job out of university for a consulting company. I was doing a project in Montreal over a few weeks and flying back to Toronto on weekends. The last day I was in Montreal, a woman I was working with in the office invited me to have dinner with her family, so I changed my flight back to Toronto to a later one, which turned out to be serendipitous. As I was boarding the plane, I was caught off guard when at the front of the plane, I recognized a very distinctive looking man with a ponytail and wireframe glasses standing right in front of me and managed to inanely ask, are you Getty Lee? He answered yes. And I stammered something like, it's nice to meet you and made my way back to my seat as I was starting to hold up the rest of the passengers. From my seat, I could see a blonde man sitting next to Getty, who I assumed correctly, must be Alex. During the flight, after I had summoned up my courage, I made my way to the front of the plane to see them, clutching a notepad for autographs. I don't remember many of the details of what we discussed, but they were very friendly, signing autographs for me and my brother and letting me know that they had been working on their next album. It would turn out to be Roll the Bones, which they were recording at Le Studio in Quebec. My only regret is that Neil was not traveling with them, but I imagine he was off having some adventure on his own. Back in the office the next day, I was so excited about what happened that I sent an email to all of my colleagues telling them about it with the subject fly by night. 
He doesn't say whether or not anyone was interested in his, <laughs> in his meeting Getty and Alex. So that was Glenn from Ottawa. Awesome, Glenn. Thanks for sharing your story. You know, that makes me wonder if Neil took commercial flights. He really didn't want to interact with fans. And I wonder if he would take a flight like Getty and Alex just did. I don't know. I mean, would he just take his motorcycle when he was in North America? Or would he fly around from spot to spot and then drive from different places? I think maybe that's why he started taking the motorcycle <laughs> from place to place, right? I guess that's true. Or maybe they had, I guess they didn't have a, a rush plane, right? They didn't have like a flight 666 no. like Iron Maiden. They should have had Bruce Dickinson flying them around. That would have <laughs> been cool. Right? Well, Alex is a, a certified pilot. Maybe he couldn't fly a Boeing 747 or something, though. Well, perhaps our guest today knows the answer to the question. Today on the Rush Fancast, we're thrilled to have the author of the new book, Neil Peart, Cultural Repercussions. He's also the professor of history at Hillsdale College in Michigan. Bradley J. Berzer, welcome to the Rush Fancast. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me. It's a privilege. I actually taught two Western Civ courses today, so it's kind of nice to talk about Rush after talking about Socrates. <laughs> <laughs> we like to start out by asking our guests, Brad, their Rush origin story. When did you first hear Rush, and how did you become a fan? That's a great question. And I'm the youngest of three brothers. So my oldest brother is eight years older than I am. And my older brother is five years older than I am. And so I grew up in a household with lots of progressive rock. So we had yes, close to the edge and Genesis and Kansas, but I actually didn't know rush until seventh grade. And I actually, I don't remember what happened, but I got in trouble in seventh grade and I was sent to detention. And I was in there with two guys, Brad and Troy, and we started talking about Genesis. And they asked me if I'd heard of this band Rush. And this was the spring of 1981 and I'd not heard of Rush. And so they started telling me about moving pictures. And actually at the end of that day, I, I rode my bike down to the local record store and I bought moving pictures. So this would have been seventh grade for me, 1981. That was my introduction. That's the first time we've ever heard of someone discovering Russian detention. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what I did wrong. I'm actually, I was a pretty good kid overall, uh, but obviously I was probably talking too much or something. So anyway, it was great. So Brad and Troy introduced me to that and uh, I fell in love with it right away. In fact, I remember looking at the sleeve uh, opening the album and looking at the sleeve. And I thought the guys look so old. <laughs> when I was in seventh I grade, they just looked ancient to me, but I thought how cool that these old guys would like rock. <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, how old were they in their like late, late twenties? Yeah, I don't know. I was 13. They would have been what in their late twenties yeah. at that point. So that just seemed ancient to me. Right. Now that I'm 55, that doesn't seem so ancient, but at the time it definitely <laughs> did. So you bought the album, Brad, without ever hearing Rush? No, these guys convinced me. Wow. And uh, I was just really, and, and I was taken with the album right away, especially YYZ. I, I thought uh, YYZ was just amazing as a kid. And I, I liked the whole album, but I was really taken with YYZ. And especially the, I don't even know what happens when Neil hits the, something there. I thought he was throwing bottles on the floor. Right. And uh, I just thought that was great. I thought, what a neat thing to do. 
It's a good thing that these kids use their powers of persuasion for a good cause. A good cause. Yeah, they could have persuaded me to do all kinds of bad things, but instead I bought Rush. So and I, I was pretty addicted to music at that point. Did you become a musician at all? No, uh, never. I, I played the piano a little bit as a kid, but I never actually picked up the guitar or the bass. I have several good friends who are excellent musicians, but I never did. I, I, I've just been a, a listener of music all my life. And my daughters have amazing voices. And uh, I actually took my oldest daughter to the R40 concert in Lincoln, Nebraska, and she loved it. And, and my kids have kind of grown up on Rush but mostly church music and uh, we're Catholic. So they sing a lot in, in mass. My kids do, but, but I'm not, I'm not even a singer at that. In fact, I'm pretty pathetic actually. So Brad, what's the inspiration behind this book you've written? Why did you decide to write it? Well, I would written a couple of things and I, I'm really into biography. So my, my area of history I'm actually trained from the American Revolution up through the American Civil War, but I've always loved the idea of biography. And for me, history is really nothing unless we can understand what an individual or a person went through. And so I, I from a very early age, I was taken with Rush and I was always interested in Neil Peart. And Peart had really been an influence on me, especially when I was in junior high and high school. And then I, I came to know of all people, uh, we actually have become pretty good friends. I got to know Kevin J. Anderson. In fact, I would say we're more than good friends. We're very close friends. And I got to know him because I had a one-year position at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And I just sent a, a tweet and I asked Kevin if he would be willing to come speak for me at UC Boulder because I had a program there. And he agreed immediately. And I'd, I'd liked Kevin, I'd liked his work, but I didn't know him. And we got to know each other and his wife, Rebecca. And of course, he knew Neil very well. And so we were out to dinner at a, a restaurant, an Indian restaurant in Boulder. And Kevin just asked me flat out, would you like to write a, a book about Neil Peart? <laughs> I said, yes, absolutely. I would love to do that. And it's one of the fastest books I've ever written. I ended up writing that between about January and July of 2015. And then I revised it again a year ago after Neil's death. But yeah, so I, it was mostly written in 2015. And I, I had a great time doing that. I, I was really, really taken not only with Peart, but also with Kevin and his publishing industry as well, which I think is amazing. So would you say this straddles the lines between a scholarly work and a biography? Yeah, you know, I didn't get to meet Peart, and I would have loved to. He wasn't even interested. He gave his blessing for me to write this book, but you know how private he was. So, I mean, there's an element in it that I would say, just because of who I am, there's a bit of scholarliness to it. But I tried to write it more as a personal interpretation of what Peart had done for me as a person. And I tried to look at, and, and this is what I've done with all my biographies. I've tried, I think it's really important for a biographer to actually get into the kind of heart and soul, if you will, and, and whether we agree with that term theologically or not, just get into the very persona of a person and try and understand the world from that person's perspective. And that's what I tried to do, just using interviews and other things that Neil had done. And of course, prior to his tragedy of losing his wife and his daughter, he was interviewed all the time. 
there are so many interviews with Peart. Uh, it's actually, I mean, for a historian, it's just a cornucopia because there's so much that's there. And uh, yeah, that was that was great to be able to go through. And sites, uh, Rush websites like Power Windows have gone through and transcribed all of those articles. And so I didn't even have to do that much research. I just went to Power Windows and downloaded all these interviews and was able to, to at least as far as I know, get into the kind of heart and mind uh, of Neil Peart. And it, it was it was fantastic. Now, the interesting thing about the book, Brad, is how you group Rush's albums. You have interesting groupings. Uh, can you tell us about those groupings and why you grouped these albums together in the way you have? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was looking back at the book just to get ready for this interview tonight, and I don't know how effective I was. I, In fact, as I was looking back at the book, I thought maybe this was the least effective part of the book. So what I tried to do is break Rush into a, a couple of different stages, as they would say, right, in different stages. Uh, so I looked at Rush before they had peered. And then I looked at Rush when they were in their extreme progressive phase, basically from fly by night all the way up until hemispheres. And then I tried to look at Rush from permanent waves up through several albums. And I, and I came to the point where I thought that Rush after Neil Peart's tragedies really kind of culminated. And I, I'm using very, you guys have to forgive me because this is just the Western Civ professor talking, <laughs> but in very Aristotelian terms, I thought that Rush really found its fulfillment in what I called Rush 3.0, which was Vapor Trails and Snakes and Arrows and then Clockwork Angels, which I I regard as amazing albums. I think they really they had returned to the progressive roots. And yet there was a bluesiness, especially in Snakes and Arrows, that just really came together. And, and I think Lifeson especially was just fantastic on these albums, but they all were. And I think the lyrics were great. But in many ways, an album like Snakes and Arrows or an album like Clockwork Angels is just as progressive, if not more so, than Hemispheres. And I, I was really taken with that. They had come back almost full circle to what they had been doing, but in a very modern sense and with a very modern sound. Yeah, it is quite an achievement to have those three albums as your last three albums, right? I mean, Vapor Trails is so heavy and so dark. And then Snakes and Arrows continues, you know, the darkness. <laughs> but then Clockwork Angels... Absolutely great. Clockwork Angels is very, very heavy, but it has a certain lightness to it at the end, right? So it's almost as with the garden as if those last three albums are like, yeah, with the garden. Those last three albums are really the the hat on top of the the mannequin, so to speak. Yeah, no, I I agree completely, and I'm just there's songs in each of those albums like Earthshine from yeah. Vapor Trails, which is just a stunning rock song. You know, whatever else you think of the album, that song is just, it's just glorious. And, and you do the same thing with the way the wind blows on, on Snakes and Arrows. And then, of course, with the Garden and other songs on Clockwork Angels. I mean, I'm just, I'm getting chills even thinking about this. I love this stuff so much. I just <laughs> yeah. think it's great. I think Rush really, really did, you know, to end their career with those three albums. Yeah, what a, just amazing. Yeah, and they're so philosophical, even more than some of the other albums, the earlier albums, when Neil was really figuring out how to write his worldview. Those three albums kind of 
or the culmination of everything that came before it and really are tackling some heavy, heavy concepts, right? Yeah, through all three albums. In, in every way, they're tackling heavy concepts. I agree, agree completely. So let's go back to Rush's earlier work. You describe the startling difference between the lyrics of the debut album and Fly By Night, and all Rush fans can see that for sure. How did Neil's contribution not only change the direction of the band, but also their connection with their audience? Yeah, that's a great question, Steve. And I mean, I think that this is a really important point when you look at something like Rush and a, and a song like Working Man, which is a fine song. There's no, it, It's a great rock song in every way. But when you compare it to almost anything on Fly By Night, it seems so sophomoric at that point because Fly By Night is just levels above the first album in so many ways. And I think Neil really, by bringing his words and bringing his ideas to the band, just changes the band completely. It goes from being kind of a like the last song on the second side of Boston's first album with the party song. I can't remember what it's called, but you know, it's just, it has that feel and rush on the first album has that kind of party rock feel to it. And then when you get to the second album and the lyrics are so dense, and I think even something which is really dark, like Anthem, uh, Anthem of the heart, Anthem of the mind. Uh, and, and I really, that's not an uplifting song, but it's such a serious song and it's so intense that it's hard not to see such a difference between what I would call Rush 1.0 and Rush 2.0 at that point. And again, I'm not saying my terminology is right there. In fact, even me saying it out loud to you guys right now sounds a little goofy to me, but, but I think that there is a difference between what was going on on in the first and second albums, uh, a pretty serious difference. And you called The Fountain of Lemneth the best song that they had done up to that point on Caress of Steel. Now, that's usually not someone's favorite <laughs> Rush song. <laughs> so why, why do you say that? Was it the reach that they were going for at the time? Yeah, yeah. You're, I mean, that's, that's personally, I mean, that's just a personal preference there. But I love how weird that song is. I, I just think that Rush was taking so many steps of possibilities of what they could do with that song that it's hard not to appreciate it, especially when you get, when you think about all the music that's coming out in 1974 and 1975, that is a bizarre song. <laughs> and you just have to credit them for taking chances like that. And that, that's part of what I love about that song. Yeah, I mean, it's a stepping stone to the other longer works. It's a little less focused, let's say, than yeah. uh, 2112 or Hemispheres. Right. But it definitely shows a progression. Absolutely. And, and, and of course, they said they were pretty stoned at the time. They were <laughs> writing music like that. So, which is funny because one of the reasons I loved Rush so much when I was a kid is I kind of associated them with the anti-drug part of rock music. And so I was very taken with that. I was like, these guys are really creative without doing anything like that. But then I found out as an adult, I was a little wrong on that. But <laughs> and one thing you make clear, Brad, is Neil's disdain for Rush's earlier work. Some of the quotes you pulled out are just amazing. Do you want to see your kindergarten paintings hanging on the refrigerator? I mean, that quote, I can't imagine any Rush fan agrees with that. Yeah, you know, it, I, I don't know how to take that. When Bono, what about a year ago, came out and said that he was so utterly embarrassed 
by all of you two's works, it just felt like a betrayal to me because I love October and I love the unforgettable fire and I love the Joshua tree. I think they're great albums. And for Bono to make that statement that this was all just essentially crud. I just, I find that deeply disturbing. I don't because Neil was such a curmudgeon. It doesn't bother me as much that he said that Bono was such an optimist that it really bothers me that he says that. And don't get me wrong. I'm not putting you two at the level of rush. I think rush is far, far superior to you two, but I, but you two had its, at its moments and it was a great rock band for a while. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't know how to take that Steve, except to say that, you know, I'm sorry that Neil felt that way. But I do appreciate that he really wanted to focus on whatever he was doing at the time. And I'm, I'm reminded you know, of a current band, Porcupine Tree, of Stephen Wilson, who makes comments like that as well, all the time talking about his previous work and where his work is. And, you know, I'm not an artist that way, so I don't quite get why you would reject so much of your past as a historian. I think the past really matters. Oh, I think that we should take credit for the stupid stuff we did at age 20, as well as the stupid stuff we did at age 30, or maybe the good stuff we did at those times. So I, it's hard for me to reconcile that with my love of Neil Peart. But yeah, he was definitely pretty strong in his opinions about their previous work. Yeah, well, he always said that his favorite Rush album is the latest Rush album, right? Yeah. Because he was always focusing on the new stuff because he was proud of the new stuff. It, it also doesn't mean you have to be embarrassed though by the old stuff. So I don't get it either. No, 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 I agree, Jerry. <laughs> don't get it all. And, uh, you know, not that I'm in any way in the league of those guys, but I think about my first book, which is now 20 years old and yeah, it's got its problems, but I'm pretty proud of the fact I had the book 20 years ago. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I think it's fine. So. Another quote that jumped out at me was about Neil's lyrics. He said, a lot of people don't pay attention to lyrics. And as a listener, I don't. The only reason I put so much into writing is I'm the one who's doing it. When he listened to music, he didn't pay attention to the lyrics. How's that possible? <laughs> yeah, I'm a little skeptical about that. I would assume, especially when I mean, you think about how much he loved the who, for example, I would guess he listened pretty strongly to those lyrics, but there may have been other bands, maybe in the late 60s, early 70s, that he kind of absorbed for their musical talent without necessarily listening to their lyrics. I, I could see him listening to Led Zeppelin and not taking the lyrics too seriously, but taking the music seriously. But listening to Roger Daltrey or Pete Townsend, I don't know. Those, those lyrics would be hard to ignore, I think, especially given how much they influenced Rush. But we hear from people all the time, people I know in my own life, they don't listen to, to lyrics. I don't understand it. I mean, I don't, know, I don't know what they're listening to. I guess it just, to some people, the singer is just another instrument making a melody and across the backup music. Just today in, in line, picking up my kids at school, the rock radio, local rock station was playing that Nirvana song about the, the kid who, who shoots off his gun and listens to the lyrics, but has no idea what they're saying. 
Right. <laughs> so anyway, I thought about that, but uh, I, I have no answer for you at all. I, I can't listen to rock without listening to the lyrics. And sometimes lyrics just drive me crazy and uh, it changes the whole song for me. But that, that's not the case with Rush, because I think the lyrics always from the, the moment I heard Moving Pictures, they always spoke to me. I mean, Tom Sawyer, you know, from the, the, the opening lyrics of that all the way to the end of that whole album and into witch hunt and my gosh i mean those lyrics are incredible and so neil clearly put so much into his lyrics another thing that jumped out at me brad is your discussion of limelight when you were talking about moving pictures it's incredible to me that neil was not only uncomfortable with the fans but the reason was that he felt inadequate and didn't deserve the accolades which is again crazy to me well, I think that's for any of us who love Rush. I, that was one of the things that struck me when I was writing that book over and over again. And it doesn't matter whether you're looking at the interviews with Neil or with Getty or Alex throughout their whole career, even all the way up till R40, they are so stunned that people love them and they just can't quite get it into their heads that they are these superstars. And there's that moment in Beyond the Lighted Stage, where basically Getty admits that his mother finally realized that they were entertainers in some way. <laughs> and I think that's such a great moment. You know, there's, a, there's kind of a wonderful Jewish moment in all of that, but there's just a great moment of that where I, I think that Rush was always astounded. And you see, even today, uh, in certain interviews that Getty has given, he's surprised when people on Twitter will say it's the 38th anniversary of this album. And he says things like, that's so bizarre. Who would ever care what a 38th anniversary <laughs> is? But, but obviously Rush fans really do. And uh, they, they take all of that very seriously. So I, I think that's just one of the things I think that speaks to the humility of Alex and Getty and Neil. I think that they just never quite got that. And, and I think that's to their credit that they never quite understood how important they were to their fans. Now, do you think that that attitude had something to do with the incredible quality for their entire careers that they never sat back and, uh, you know, rested on their laurels, so to speak? Yeah, I, I think that's part of it, Jerry. They clearly were always trying to move to the next stage in whatever they were doing. And I, that's one of the things that I think that all of us who love Rush, we love that about them. We love the fact that they were always trying to do better on the next album, always trying to do better with the drums or the guitars or the bass or the keyboards, the lyrics, everything. And they really were a band that just never stopped. But I do think there's a true humility. And, and you can see it in Getty. This isn't affected. Right. When you watch Getty in interviews, he's clearly astounded that people love him. It just it doesn't. And, and I suppose that's probably part of the junior high, high school nerd, just never quite realizing that he's part of the popular crowd in some way. I think it's a, a beautiful part of who they were as people. But isn't that what makes them so attractive to fans that they're just like us? They're regular guys. They don't think they're better than we are. Right. <laughs> They're regular guys who have taken their talents to the nth degree. And I, I think one of the great things about Rush is they call us, their fans, to do the same thing. 
you know, and they don't want us to be imitators. They don't want us to be mini Gettys or mini Alexes or mini Neils. They want us to be who we are. They want a pure Steve and they want a pure Jerry and they want a pure Brad. And I, I think that's one of the things that those of us who love Rush love so much about them is that their individualism speaks to all of us. It really does call the best out of all of us. And it, it is, you know, you think about their, their themes, they hate the idea of conformity. They really do want us to be the best people we are meant to be. And whether that's by God or nature, whatever it is, they want that from us. And that, at least for me, that's when I first heard moving pictures, even as a seventh grader, it just hit me. It's like, no, I need to be myself. I need to be who I am. I need to be Brad and not be part of the in crowd or not be part of this group or that group, but actually doing my own thing. And I think that's what Rush always did. And, and they never were part of the crowd. You know, it's amazing when you go back and you look at the way a magazine like Rolling Stone dealt with Rush, they were just as abusive as you could possibly imagine until about 2015. And then suddenly when Rush's career was done, Rolling Stone changes their attitude. Now Rolling Stone loves Rush and they've done a couple of excellent articles on Rush and they did an excellent article on Neil Peart, the spirit of Neil Peart. It was a beautiful article, but through most of the career, they hated Rush and Rush just wasn't part of the in crowd. And they had to go through, I think, all of that to become something at least recognized by something like Rolling Stone as better than what they really, not, not better, but equal to what they really were in their greatness. Yeah. I think at some point they could no longer ignore it, right? No. That Rush had so many fans and so many great albums. Yeah. And I love, there's a book and I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of it. It's like uh, Liberty Rush and the Pursuit of Something by Rob Friedman. And it came out maybe five or six years ago. But Friedman makes the point that basically all of the people who hated Rush have retired or they've gone off and done other <laughs> things. And all of those, who've, uh, those of us who've loved Rush, we're now middle age. We have good careers. We can afford albums and we can afford to support Rush. And we could have gone to their concerts prior to 2015. We could have done all of these things. And in a way, we outlived the critics. And I think Friedman is absolutely right about that. And I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of his book right now. It, it's, a, I think, one of the best books written on Rush, but I'm just dropping the title. Now, in the book, Brad, you mentioned Grace Under Pressure and how that album taught you a great lesson as a 16-year-old. Can you tell us what that lesson was? Well, so Grace Under Pressure was one of those albums that, for me in high school at least, really did kind of explain the world. Uh, everything from the idea of the Soviet Union with its gulag state, and you imagine some of the lyrics on that album, to the idea of acid rain. There was so much in that album that meant so much to me. And I ended up, I went to Notre Dame, University of Notre Dame for my undergrad. And my sophomore year, we had what was called just a core seminar in the liberal arts. I loved it. I loved the course, but we were basically encouraged by our professor to write about whatever we wanted in terms of popular culture and the liberal arts. And so I chose to write on Grace Under Pressure. And I wrote my semester long paper on the lyrics of Grace Under Pressure. And Professor Kennedy actually liked it, which, you know, I look back now, <laughs> I think that's amazing that all worked out. <laughs> 
Um, but he did. And I just, it was such a revelation to me and everything. And I don't want to get you know too personal about this, but everything from my politics to my own religious views, my views on what was going on in the 1980s between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, they were all deeply shaped by that album. And, you know, all the way to the last song and the rabbit that gets run under the wheels. <laughs> I mean, that's, I think in many ways, Grace Under Pressure is Russia's darkest album. Uh, and it, it just hit me as a high school kid and as a college student, how profound those lyrics were. And it was for me, at least, one of the first times that I realized that pop culture could actually say deeply profound things about the world. And I had kind of suspected that with Neil. In fact, I had written a paper in high school about Tom Sawyer because I was writing on Huck Finn. And I was interested in how Neil had presented Tom Sawyer in that. And it kind of opened up some things for me when I read Huck Finn. And so I had already turned to Neil in some academic pursuits. But it was really in that paper I wrote for my sophomore college class that just made me realize that Neil was a very serious thinker, that he's not just some guy in pop culture who got lucky a couple of times with a couple of lyrics, but actually had very deep things to tell us about the world. And I, I still, even at age 55, I still believe that about Neil. I think that he always, whatever age he was, was just gifted in really analyzing the world and figuring out what was right and what was wrong with the world. And I don't always agree with him. I mean, there's certain things. His atheism does very little for me. Uh, I'm, I'm a practicing Roman Catholic, and I have been most of my adult life. I wasn't when I was a kid, but I have been in my adult life. I mean, there are things religiously I disagree with, Neil, but I think that most of what he said should be taken seriously. Even his own arguments against Christianity, I think, should be taken seriously. I think they have merit. And it's just, there's so few people in the world who can offer that kind of continuous analysis of things that really matter. But Neil was one of the gifted few who really, no matter what he said, it mattered. Yeah. I mean, most Rush songs are not your, are not about the topics of your average rock song, right? Not too many rock songs that are about no. geopolitical brinksmanship, like some songs are. Yeah. Absolutely. Or you think about the Fear Trilogy. Or, I mean, these are just not normal songs, but they're <laughs> they're incredible. You know, and you, and you can think about on rock radio, listening to Joe Walsh destroy his hotel room. <laughs> you just you can't even imagine that with, with Getty and with Alex and Neil. And that's one of the things in Beyond the Lighted Stage, of course, Kiss makes such a big deal of this, that here were these guys who could have had all the women they wanted. They could have done all the drugs they wanted. They could have done anything, but they chose to read and kind of sit around. And, and, and obviously, as we've talked about, they weren't always pristine about this. They weren't always pure, but uh, certainly compared to probably a lot of rock culture at the time, they were pretty amazing and pretty moral and pretty ethical. So you made a controversial statement in your book, Brad. You said you were sick of the big money. I want to hear the explanation for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm not now. I actually like that song, but it's uh, so I grew up in Kansas. I grew up in a, uh, a medium sized town, about 35,000 people, Hutchinson, Kansas. And I listened to my favorite radio station was out of Wichita called T95, KIC T95. And when Big Money came out, they played that song 
endlessly. And not only did they play that endlessly, which now I would give anything for a radio station to play Rush endlessly. <laughs> but at the time, it was too much. And then you imagine how often MTV played that video. And uh, I, I just, I have to admit, I got tired of it. And Steve, that doesn't excuse me. I was wrong. <laughs> but uh, I mean, there, there's no doubt that there was a moment there where of all of Rush's songs, I had heard that too much. Uh, but now I appreciate it. I appreciate the lyrics. I appreciate the music. I think it's a great opening to that album. Uh, it's a great song. And I've heard it live several times. And when they do it live, they, they do it well. Yeah, as they did everything well. Now, you also talk a lot about uh, counterparts and how it was a return to form. Can you talk a little bit more about that, uh, how counterparts was different from the most recent albums that came before it? Yeah, you know, Jerry, it's not my favorite of their albums. It's not one that I go back to very often. Uh, I'll go back to it every now and then, but it, it's not like for me, Grace Under Pressure. I can go back to Grace Under Pressure or to Signals or, or to Moving Pictures just any time. I, mean, I can put those on and I'm never, ever, ever, ever bored with those albums. Uh, and I'm never bored with counterparts, but for whatever reason, I just don't put it on as much. I, I find that the lyrics, and as much as I appreciate the lyrics, I find that at times they're a little much too in your face, or at least too in my face, in the way that Neil brings some of these out. I don't think he's quite as artful in that album as he is in some of his other albums. And yet there are good things like you imagine, I mean, his line, which he takes from T.S. Eliot, that wilderness of mirrors. And, and there are amazing things of that. But what I liked about counterparts, especially when it came out and I saw them on tour for that album, I, I really liked the return to the guitar. And I liked getting past as much as I liked albums like Subdivisions and, and Power Windows. You know, it was good to get beyond the keyboards, I think, and to really get back to that kind of you know, what would have been in the early 90s, a, a form of grunge. And I, I think that Rush did that very well. In some ways, they did it just as well, if not better than Pearl Jam or Soundgarden. But they were clearly influenced by those sounds at the time. And so I think that it really helped them get back to something. Uh, that, that even the previous album that Presto just couldn't do, there was something in Counterparts that I think really spoke to the kind of heart of Rush. But I, I, I love, I absolutely love Test for Echo. And then you get the albums after that, as we've already talked about. I think that Counterparts was a great kind of in-between album between their synthesizer period and then their return to form with their more progressive albums that they ended with, those last three albums. But Test for Echo is really in between. It's kind of half progressive and half synthesized. And it's a it's a schizophrenic album. I think it's a great album, but it's schizophrenic in its themes as well as in its musical styles. Uh, now, what you don't see that in Vapor Trails. Vapor Trails is of a whole, and Snakes of Arrows is of a whole, and Clockwork Angels is of a whole. But I think that Test for Echo was a little bit in between those. In 1997, Brad Neal lost his daughter in a car accident, and then shortly after, his wife to cancer. You had a, a similar tragedy in your life. Can you tell us about that and how Neil, in a way, helped you get through that? Yeah, it, thanks for asking, Matt. And it, it is a, it's a tough thing to talk about, and it's been 15 years ago now, but my wife and I had a child that came to full term. So she was nine months and probably two days and the doctor wanted us to induce labor 
her on her birth date, that is uh, on the, the due date when she was at nine months and we decided not to. And within the next two days, our daughter got wrapped up in the umbilical cord and, and strangled to death. So my wife had to deliver uh, a deceased baby. And so it's not quite the same thing. I mean, Neil actually knew his daughter. She was a full personality and he had known her for years and years and years when she passed away. So I don't want to suggest it's exactly the same. What I knew was a potential. What he knew was a real or an absolute thing. But it, but it did strike me at the time. And I was very, you know, certainly when Neil went off the radar, and I'm sure most Rush fans were like this, we, we were distraught about this. Uh, we knew that something terrible had happened. We had no idea how he was handling it. We heard rumors that he was off on his motorcycle, that he was off touring in terms of, of touring the country or touring North America. But we really had no idea what was going on. And so when I read his own autobiography about this, I was just very taken with the kind of emotions that he went through and what he had to deal with, to deal with the loss of his daughter. And then horribly, the loss of his wife as well within this one year or almost one year period. It just, it really hit me. Uh, again, not because the two things are exactly the same. I actually think through that Neil went through something much worse, but it was, there was no doubt that it hit me hard as well because of the, our own loss of our daughter, Cecilia, who's actually, I mean, just again, it was 15 years ago now, but we live across from a cemetery. So <laughs> you, I know we're on audio here, but I'm pointing to the cemetery. Uh, it's literally across the street and we have her buried there and we visit her grave at least once a week. You know, in the first few years after she died, we went every day. Now it's once a week. Uh, but, but yeah, it's amazing to have her so close. And I actually have, I mean, we're again, crazy Catholics. Uh, we have seven children. So, and my wife's uh, also an academic. So it's kind of, I mean, this is not the usual course of things for two academics or college professors to have this many kids, but uh, we have a pretty, pretty lively family overall. And we've been able to incorporate Cecilia, our daughter that we lost. We've been able to incorporate her. We have birthday parties for her and the kids and I walk over to her grave. And so, so she's been very much a part of our lives, even though it's been 15 years. But again, um, I don't want to suggest it's exactly the same thing, but it did hit me in the same way. And I ended up writing, I'd never done this before, but after we lost our own daughter and after I read Neil's books, I wrote, I sent him a copy of one of my books, a book I wrote on J.R.R. Tolkien and just wrote him a letter in which I explained that I had also lost a daughter again, not quite in the same way, but uh, that his words had really resonated with me. And he did end up sending me a, a postcard with a, with his signature on it. And I've got that in my office at school. I have that on the wall. So I'm very proud of that. In fact, it's the, the centerpiece of my office is, is Neil Peart's signature. So you know, we've gotten a lot of uh, emails from people who feel the same way. They've had some kind of loss or tragedy in their life, and they feel a strength knowing that Neil was able to go through a similar thing, that at least one other person could gather the strength and just keep on going. Is that kind of how... You felt too? Yeah, Jerry. I mean, that, that's exactly, that. that's how it felt at the time. And I, I was, uh, 
you know, even though I was a, a Catholic at that point, I, I was furious at God. I mean, I was just absolutely furious. It's like, you, you can't ask me to be a dad and then take away my child at the moment that I'm supposed to be a dad. I mean, you just, you can't do that. I was furious. And, and to know, and especially Neil writes about that, not necessarily with God, but that anger that he has at the universe and that moment where he's in that church in Mexico and he remembers some of the things that his daughter had thought about in terms of religion. I, I just think that's a, that's a great moment, not only in Neil's life, but in literature where he talks about that and he's able to call up that kind of anger, but also in a way that forgiveness that reconciliation of saying, okay, I mean, this is, this is beyond me. There's nothing I can really do about this. So yeah, Jerry, I mean, that was, that was hugely, and just, I mean, I've admired Neil since 1981. So the fact that he had gone through that meant everything to me. And I'm, I'm terribly sorry he went through that. Don't get me wrong, but just the fact that we had had in some way a shared experience definitely meant a lot to me. And I, I'm, I, I'm not surprised that people have written you and have told you that before uh, at all, because Neil is so evocative in his books about this, and he's so open about it, especially considering in many ways, Neil's a very closed book about his emotions and to be that revelatory about it, I think probably cost him personally a great, great deal as just a human being. I think that was constitutionally contrary to who he was as a human. And so to be able to talk about that the way he did, I think was pretty amazing. Brad, in the conclusion of your book, you make a great point how Neil didn't inspire people to be like him. He inspired people to be themselves. Do you feel like he inspired you to be yourself? I do. And, and I felt like he's been doing that since I first met him. Uh, I, I think this is one of the great characteristics of any good human being. And it, it doesn't matter if I'm a father or a husband or a professor. You know, my job is not to make many brats. That, that's not my job. My job is to take the person I find, whether it's my son or my daughter or my student, and to make them whatever God or nature meant them to be. And that, I mean, I think you have to be the most Steve you can be, and Jerry has to be the most Jerry he can be. And that doesn't mean we're not full of, of crud. I mean, obviously, we've all got our flaws. Neil had his flaws. We've all got our flaws. We've all done stupid, stupid stuff in our life. But we've all done amazing things as well. And I, I really, for me, Neil's greatness is that he calls to that best side of who we are. And he doesn't ignore the bad side that you can find that in his lyrics everywhere. He recognizes we've got this dark side, but he always calls to us to be the best person we can be, not just with ourselves, but with our spouses, with our loved ones, with our friends, with our communities. So, yeah, that and probably if you forced me, Steve, I would say that that was the real reason I wrote the book is I wanted to bring that out. I mean, that simple lesson. But that lesson that we are meant to be individual and Neil calls us to be the best individual we can be. That to me is really the thesis statement of what I, at least what I wrote or what I tried to write. Again, the name of the book is Neil Peart, Cultural Repercussions. Brad, can you tell us uh, where we can find the book if Rush fans would like to purchase it? Oh, sure. I mean, it's uh, it's easily available at Amazon and at Barnes and Noble. You can also go directly to the press, to Wordfire Press, Kevin Anderson's press. You can order it there. It's uh, amazingly available in hardback as well as paperback. 
there's also an e-version that you can get if you want to do Kindle. So yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. It's nice to, to promote that. Um, yeah, so I, I'm glad it's in all of those formats. And uh, I was especially glad in the first edition, we just did paperback. But for the second edition, we did a hardback. And I'm, I'm really, yeah, I'm very pleased with that. And I'm very pleased with what Kevin Anderson did with it. One thing is certain, Neil continues to teach us every single day, Brad. Thanks for helping us see even more of the greatness of the professor. It's great talking to you guys. And thank you for being patient with me. I know with the start of school and my illness and everything else that we got behind on all this, but I'm so glad we connected. So one thing we've noticed, Jerry, throughout these three years we've done this podcast is how much Neil Peart has inspired us all for years. Yeah, like I said, I've I've gotten so many emails from people who are just inspired by the band as a whole Mm -hmm. to not necessarily great things. Like when you think of great things, you think of, you know, very famous people doing amazing things, but good things, good things in their life. Yeah. And the message that Brad wanted to get across in the book, just be yourself. Right. Right. Yeah. You got to be you, Steve. I got to be me. One thing I wanted to mention, Jer, we forgot to mention this. We should have mentioned this a few weeks ago. Bill Wallace of the Sunlight on Chrome Initiative, we had him on the podcast probably about six weeks ago. He met his goal on the weekend of July 29th through the 31st. He raised $2,112 for brain cancer research. That's awesome. I know. It's incredible, right? Everybody really stepped up. It was great. Yeah, and I think at the last minute, somebody donated like $1,000 to get him to his goal, which I thought was great. Yeah, it wasn't me, but it was someone (laughs) with $1,000, and I'm glad for it. It wasn't me either, but uh, we thank Bill Wallace again for joining us, and thanks to everyone who donated to his cause that went to cancer research, so that's a great cause. It is. You can find us on Twitter. We are at RushFanCast. Instagram, find us at TheRushCast. Email Jerry, TheRushCast at gmail.com. Let them know what you thought of our conversation with Bradley J. Berzer. Find us on your favorite podcast app. The bass intro and outro, you know that's Lex. He's the best. And Jer, what's your quote? Give us something great to wrap this up. Yeah, it's from The Stars Look Down. Nice one. Like the rat in a maze who says, watch me choose my own direction. Are you under the illusion the path is winding your way? Wow, that's deep. It is, right? Thanks, Jeremy. All right, see you.